Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, former International Development Secretary Andrew Mitchell, the Conservative MP who helped Boris Johnson ascend the political ladder and who supported his leadership bid, only to discover that his word was not his bond. Johnson, much to Mitchell's disgust, broke a promise not to scrap the Department for International Development. He was speaking last night at the Conservative Party conference to all the candidates there. And apparently on two occasions, he was promoting my book. And he said, read Andrew Mitchell's book and you'll see how he, I think he, the words he used was save my career from John Major. <laughs> <laughs> so, so at the very least, he's an ungrateful bastard. <laughs> Much more hugely entertaining and revealing stuff from Andrew to come. First, just a reminder that there's no sugar daddy or media magnet bankrolling this podcast. We're funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper and the news-breaking Byline Times website. So no one owns us. We can report without fear or favour thanks to people like you. So if you like what you're listening to, you can get details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. If I was asked for one of those quotations they put on a book cover, I'd describe Andrew Mitchell's autobiography, Beyond a Fringe, Tales from a Reformed Establishment Lackey, as a right rollicking read. With great gusto and considerable humour, he takes us inside the corridors of power, where he variously has been a chief whip, making sure that Tory MPs lined up to support the government, and a pioneering Secretary of State for International Development. Mitchell is unquestionably an establishment figure. His dad was a Conservative MP. He was president of the Cambridge University Union and embarked on a career in merchant banking before first winning a seat in the Commons in 1987, representing Gedling in Nottinghamshire. Politically, though, he has always been on the socially liberal wing of the party, defending gay rights, encouraging diversity in the selection process for parliamentary candidates and seeking to improve the lot of women and girls in developing countries. His career came crashing down after the Plebgate scandal in 2012, which not only forced his resignation from David Cameron's government, but saw him lose £2 million in a libel case against The Sun not to mention plunging him into a deep depression. Since then, he has continued to represent Sutton Coalfield, where he's been the MP since 2001, and to lobby from the back benches for the causes he believes in, including greater financial transparency to reduce money laundering through London and British territories abroad. His relationship with Boris Johnson is, to say the least, mixed. In one of his many backroom roles, Mitchell helped ensure Johnson was added to the list of approved Tory candidates. Mitchell also supported Johnson's Tory leadership bid, but only on condition that the Department for International Development wasn't dismantled and that the government maintained its commitment to spend 0.7% of GDP on overseas aid. As Prime Minister, Johnson has reneged on both promises. And this was the only part of the book where I detected a note of anger from Mitchell, something I put to him when we spoke recently. The point you make about the anger over Diffid is that I think it's worse than a crime. It's a mistake. And I think that Boris, when he was at the Foreign Office, got the wrong idea about development. 
that. And I think also you know, there's a great danger. Boris, I tease people that Boris is sort of King Henry VIII. You know, he has a court and he doesn't use, for example, the National Security Council. Now, the National Security Council brings together all Britain's foreign facing assets. It brings together the prime minister, the defence secretary, the foreign secretary, the development secretary, as was the head of the police, the head of the military, the secret intelligence service, all to bring together that knowledge and use it to the advantage of Britain and to the advantage of our allies and those we're seeking to help. And and what we've lost by pulling the thread of development out, and it has been pulled out, just because you call it the FCDO doesn't mean that the D isn't silent. If you pull that thread out, you lose something that really matters. And abolishing DFID, it's not about a Department of State which had great civil servants, which it did. It's about the fact that it was the most respected engine in the world for poverty alleviation, for leading the fight to do something about these huge discrepancies of opportunity which are obscene and which disfigure our world. That's what DFID was the foremost engine in the world, respected everywhere with civil servants and others coming from all around the world to it. It was the place which galvanised the great universities to come up with world-leading policy, which got the uh, NGOs and the charities who affect things on the ground and make things happen, and also the think tanks which fashion policy. And, and policy wants more around the world used to come to it. And just to abolish it, and all the expertise has gone now, It will be very hard for a future government to reassemble, as I hope it will. But it's all gone now at the door. It's either gone to New York or Geneva, or or it's just left. And that was a symbol of global Britain, of which Boris strongly approves. And yet we have cut ourselves off at the knees by abolishing this department and abolishing the one aspect of global Britain, sort of development superpower status that was respected and acknowledged all around the world. So as I say, it isn't just a crime, it's a mistake that he has done. And I'm deeply disappointed in myself that the arguments of I and others that he shouldn't do that and stop the point seven as well at a time when there's a worldwide pandemic where Britain has the chairmanship of the G7, where we're chairing the COP in November in Glasgow to start to lead the G7 from the rear when every other country is increasing its aid and support for the poorest parts of the world. You know, I mean, it's just an extraordinary error of judgment. And you say that 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 anger comes across. Well, you know, it's heartfelt. I spent 15 years trying to win this argument and have failed to do so. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. And there is an element of personal betrayal about this, because you describe backing Boris Johnson eventually in his leadership bid, but backing him only on condition that Diffid wasn't abolished or taken in to the Foreign Office, which is exactly what has happened, and that Britain would not abandon its commitment to spend 0.7% of its GDP on international development. Boris Johnson gave you assurances personally, on both those points. And he betrayed you. He went back on his word. Well, I think let's let's put it politely that he changed his mind. But, you know, both what you say and what I say is correct. <laughs> well, you draw attention to the fact that early on in his career, and there's a fascinating chapter about the selection process whereby Boris gets put onto the list initially for being an MEP. You draw attention there to his dishonesty to the fact that he wrote stories about straight bananas, for example, which played very well with the Tory right, which played very well with the tabloid newspapers, but which you knew were not true. 
Well, I think that's what so enraged John Major as Prime Minister. Funnily enough, I saw Boris yesterday morning and reminded him. He knew that the book was coming. I reminded him about the book. And he jokingly said to one of his uh, civil servants who were with him, can we issue a D notice to uh, suppress it? But actually, you know, to be fair to Boris, he was speaking last night at the Conservative Party conference to all the candidates there. And apparently on two occasions, he was promoting my book. And he said, read Andrew Mitchell's book and you'll see how he, I think the words he used was save my career from John Major. (laughs) (laughs) So so at the very least, he's an ungrateful bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the book is not flattering to Boris Johnson, I think it's fair to say. And it's not flattering from the perspective of someone like you who was very fair-minded to him at the start of his parliamentary career, who did ultimately back him in his leadership bid. Do you regret now the help that you gave him? Well, I'll tell you, I don't, because the job of the vice chairman of the party selecting candidates was not to make windows into people's souls about where they stood in the party. It was to present to constituencies who are looking for a candidate and possibly a future member of parliament, people who are authentically conservative, who the party can back, and from that list they can choose who they think best fits their constituency. And my job was to sort out whether people were of the right calibre and the right experience to be good Conservative candidates. No question at all. Boris is brilliant and hugely charismatic, and he's undoubtedly a Conservative. And actually, all these people who say that Boris was calling the odds about Brexit, Boris has always been a Brexiteer. Uh, There's no doubt about that. And those who say that he was calling the odds are being unfair to him on that. So I'm in no doubt that the right decision was made about Boris being on the candidates list. I'm disappointed, obviously, that he has not delivered on on his promises that you set out. But but I tell you this, Boris is extraordinarily difficult to dislike because he's extremely funny and entertaining. And he's also done a brilliant job in winning for us all these red wall seats in the West Midlands and in the Northeast. And be in no doubt, it was Boris that won them because once I knew that the royal town was safe, that's your constituency, the royal town of Sutton Coalfield. Yeah. Once I knew that all was well there, I went to the Red Bull seats to try and campaign with these brilliant candidates there who are now local champions in the House of Commons. And I used to say to people, you know, are you going to support the Conservatives? And they'd say, no, I'm going to support Boris. And this is the thing that the Labour Party and his critics don't understand, I think, which is that people like him and they warm to him because he has the failings of all of us in some ways. He's a flawed character in the way that we are all flawed, but he's extremely open about it. You quote in the book uh, a colleague of yours, a guy called Richard Simmons, who right at that early stage when Boris Johnson was first being proposed as an MEP, you say that in Richard Simmons' view, Boris was a cynical journalist, a chancer, a brand, not a politician, a less than honest political thorn in Prime Minister Major's side. So Richard Simmons really had the measure of him. Undoubtedly, he's charismatic and you bear witness to the fact that he's attended various fundraising functions that you've organised for charities. But he is fundamentally a blusterer, fundamentally dishonest. 
Well, the extract that you read out about Simmons is one half of the argument that went on about whether he should be a candidate. And the other half of the argument, which obviously I didn't agree with Simmons' analysis, uh, I was on the side that said he is extremely clever, extremely bright. He's clearly a conservative and he should be on the list. And as I've just been explaining to you, I, I'd still, you know, 30 years later or whatever it is, don't think that is wrong. Even though we shafted you over defeat. <laughs> Well, yes, but we all fight our battles. And I, I think also journalists try to get me set to say he's a liar. I don't say that. I don't think, I don't think politics is, is dignified by calling people liars and so on. You know, he changed his mind. I'm quite happy to, to camp on that. Uh, but obviously, as I say, I think it was a terrible decision. And also, you know, it'll come back to haunt us, the decision that was made about the point seven, for this reason that the Conservative Party took 23 years to get an overall majority from 1992 to 2015. And we finally got it because we saw off all those liberal seats because people were prepared to vote for the Conservative Party who care about internationalism and development and so forth. And they switched from the Liberal or Labour Party to vote Conservative and we got an overall majority. And the challenge for Boris as our party leader and as Prime Minister and for all of actually, is retain the people who've given us their faith at the last election and for whom we have to deliver in the Red Wall seats, while also keeping the internationalist, the liberal social wing of the Conservative Party, who care deeply about the discrepancies in opportunity around the world and who want Britain to be a force for good in that arena and who don't want to see us pulling in. And, and we are pulling in. The truth is that at a time when the world needs the maximum amount of internationalism, the world is moving in the opposite direction towards far more narrow nationalism and narrow self-interest. And that is not the way you're going to beat the challenges of the future, whether it's climate change or pandemics. You know, it needs more international cooperation. And Britain is in a very good position to lead that because of our status at the United Nations with the Commonwealth. We're a great European power in or out of the European Union, NATO. We're a significant military power. We have a, a brilliant diplomatic service. We punch above our weight. But you need to recognise the importance of internationalism and steer away from the narrow nationalism, which is now, you know, I think it's not just in Britain, but it's it's what gave us Trump in America. It's, it's Xi in China, Modi in India, Putin in in, in Russia, it's the characteristic of, of the era in which we live. Don't you think that Boris Johnson is part of that trend then of, of nationalists, of populists? No, I do think he's a populist. And, you know, in one way, there's nothing wrong with populism. I mean, the electorate expects us to do what they want. But, you know, we're not elected as delegates. We're elected as representatives. And I often say to constituents who demand that I vote in a particular way, I say, I greatly respect your view. But in a, you elect me to use my judgment. If you don't like it, you'll vote against me at the next election and get rid of me. But you do elect me to use my own judgment. And I think that members of parliament should always remember that and not run before the wind, as, which is what you know, populism can be that and it shouldn't be. In terms of Britain's behaviour on the international scene, I know that there's a, a part of the book that talks about Yemen and you are no peacenik, I think it's fair to say. You voted for the war 
in Iraq. You also voted in favour of military action in Libya, which was subsequently voted down by the House of Commons. So I think your comments on Yemen have real force. And you've been to Yemen and you've seen some of the destruction that has been wrought on that country using British military hardware by the Saudis. And you say that we give the appearance of being owned for commercial reasons by the Saudis, that we're involved in a dispute which is immoral, but which for commercial reasons we continue to back. I think a couple of very interesting points that you raise there. The first is that on Yemen, that I think that the, the British establishment, the government, but made a decision that because of our security interests and our commercial interests, we should be alongside Saudi Arabia and we should be part of the Saudi coalition. I think that was a profoundly flawed judgment. Why? Because I've never called for an arms embargo, but I think that selling weapons to the Saudis when they're doing what they're doing in Yemen becomes increasingly difficult. And we've seen the Americans recoil from it. So in terms of our economic interests, I think it was a short-sighted and, and erroneous judgment. But in terms of our security, the bombing night after night is a first-class recruiting sergeant for tens of thousands of young Yemeni jihadis who know from where these bombs are coming night after night. So I think, you know, it was a, a deeply flawed strategic judgment. But on the wider point you make, I was very strongly in favour of action in Libya, and I was very strongly in favour of action in Syria. And in, in Libya, remember, although we never had a peace to stabilise, and I spent several months of my life working almost exclusively on stabilisation policy in Libya, and assembling assets from all around the world through the United Nations, Britain making a colossal investment in that. But in the end, there was never a peace to stabilise. But that operation in Libya was a humanitarian operation. We knew that Gaddafi was sending his forces into Benghazi to slaughter his opponents. Uh, and he said that there was a ceasefire. We knew from satellite imagery that he's, there was nothing of the sort and that he was powering towards Benghazi. And we intervened for humanitarian reasons to stop that massacre. And the lesson I learned from Libya and from Syria and from Iraq, because on Syria I was in favour of intervention at a certain point and in a certain way, which didn't take place. And you learn this lesson that sometimes it's extremely dangerous to intervene with the negative effects we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya. And sometimes it's extremely dangerous not to intervene, as we saw in Syria, and as would have been the case if we hadn't intervened in Sierra Leone, which was the high watermark, if you like, of liberal interventionism, because that was a brilliant operation run by General Richards, the former commander of the British military forces, and by Tony Blair. My colleague on Byline Times, Nafiz Ahmed, and I covered this in last week's podcast, calculated that the death toll from the war on terror, which included all of those conflicts that you've mentioned there, apart from Sierra Leone, accounted for six million deaths. How do you square supporting those conflicts with that kind of death toll? Well, I think it's a accusation which has considerable resonance. I mean, I think that in Iraq, we simply got it wrong. My wife marched against the Iraq war. and My children, who were young, were very much against it. 
they were surrounded with their school friends and peers at a, a young age were very much opposed to it. I sat in the middle of the opposition benches. I was approached by the whips on the way into that Iraq debate who said, you will support war, won't you? And I said, no, I'm going to listen to what the prime minister says. I couldn't get a seat. I sat in the gangway looking down at the prime minister and I listened to the speech that Tony Blair made and I thought it was unanswerable. I thought I had to follow into the lobby. But I'm not imputing any ignoble motives to the then Labour government. And I watched the agony on the faces of Labour members as they tried to work out whether to support their consciences or their prime minister. But, you know, it was the wrong thing to do. And, and also the handling of Afghanistan was wrong. In the end, there was no exit strategy. And the result is that we've been defeated. And we've been defeated by groups of people in flowing robes with flip-flops and Kalashnikovs who've been able to pin down and defeat the most up-to-date modern military machinery in the world. One of the most moving chapters in the book, perhaps the most moving, is the chapter when you talk about your own personal experience of what we have to call plebgate. And you're very careful not to rehash the details of that particular story, and I'm not going to try and do that here. But what was so moving about it was the to read about the harrowing impact that it had on you personally. Day after day, journalists being camped outside your house, hounding you, your family. You also ended up with a, a £2 million plus bill after losing a, a libel case in that regard. Just talk me through how that all felt for you. As you rightly say, I'm very keen not to re refight old battles. And indeed, I can't because the, the law of the land, we live under a rule of law. And if you lose a libel case, you lose a libel case. And what happened, it all ended in a, in a terrible mess because the judge preferred the other side's evidence to mine. Uh, so I lost. But equally, very large numbers of police officers were disciplined. Uh, several were sacked. One went to prison. So it was just a mess, really. And I thought I couldn't ignore it in the book. And I thought that the most interesting thing I could do was just to describe what it was like to be caught up in a massive media squall, uh, which went on and on for ages and ages and ages. And I thought that would be the most interesting thing. It's not, I mean, I hope you would agree, it's, it's, there's no, no element of self-pity or anything in it. I just want to describe what it's like so people can see the human side of these squalls. And I quote a former Irish journalist who said that being caught up in a media storm was very much like being shaken by a giant skinhead. And it is. But the contrast to that is I'm also very, very clear that in the end, our liberties, our human rights are not protected by judges and police officers and ministers and members of the House of Commons. They are protected by having a free, raucous, cynical, cacophonous press. I've had run-ins with the press, but I've also had the press on my side on things where I've been against my own government, who have given me the opportunity to make a case I feel strongly about, which has not been the case of the government of the day. So I recognise that in a free society, governments get things wrong. I agree with uh, that great phrase from the reign of Charles I, put not your trust in princes. I'm very sceptical about the state because the state, people think the state is a all-seeing, omnipotent, get-it-right institution. It is not. It is composed of people like you and me with our prejudices and our preconceptions and our human failings. The state is no different from us in that respect. And so I approach these things with a 
deep scepticism. And I've done so too during the awful pandemic the whole country has been through because we have given the government and ministers extraordinary powers which they exercise unscrutinised, or they did exercise it unscrutinised, by the House of Commons. We are all elected to try and keep the government straight. And that is a very bad state of affairs. Uh, essential, of course, but in the, in the recent circumstances, but very bad for our human rights and civil liberties and for the balance of our society. Yeah, I was going to talk about your defence of the press because I thought that was really striking because you describe a real mauling and a hounding at the hands of the press during that episode. And you do then come out very robustly to defend the press. And you specifically mentioned the Murdoch press. But on Byline Times, we've spoken in the past to a former Prime Minister of Australia who talks about the Murdoch press in that country needing to be constrained. On a recent episode of this podcast, I spoke to an ABC journalist in Australia who had studied the close links between Fox News, run by Murdoch at the time when he was at the helm, and the incidents leading up to the January the 6th insurrection and the closeness of that channel with Fox. People look at this country and see the way in which prime ministers or prospective prime ministers have to cosy up to Rupert Murdoch in order to win his endorsement, at the same time as acknowledging the value of a free press. Don't you think that our press actually isn't that free and that there are characters like Murdoch who have disproportionate power? No, actually, I don't agree with that, because I think in many ways the modern media is so pluralistic. There are so many different outlets that actually that plurality ensures that we don't hear one view. I think when the Murdoch press, I mean, I talk about Fleet Street when I was a sort of bartender and Sullivan in my school holidays. And think of what the press was like then. It was all in Fleet Street. When the news came out, we always knew in Elvino what the news was before it went up on the billboards, before it went into the newspapers and the television. It's not like that anymore. It's this this was your family wine bar for people who haven't read the book. It was Elvino, one in Fleet Street, one in Cannon Street in London, and the Fleet Street one was big beloved of, of print journalists. Journalist, right? It was journalists and lawyers who used to go in there. And I worked as a, in my school holidays there. And it was a wonderful place to, there were very many interesting people who would come in and as the bartender, you'd hear the conversations and so on. And it was all absolutely fascinating. But my point is this, that I think when the Murdochization of the press, first of all, took place, it had a plus and a minus. It increased transparency very significantly. It also specialised in taking down characters who had never been taken down before. It broke any deference that was left, including, as far as the Murdoch press was concerned, the royal family. All of that was swept away. And in a way, the Murdoch press was saying, you show me a hero and I will show you their feet of clay. (laughs) But at the same time, you wouldn't deny, though, that the Murdoch press has had an insidious effect on British public life, would you? Whether it's horrendous, grotesque mistakes like... the the reporting of the Hillsborough tragedy, for example, or simply the hounding of people like yourself, whatever the rights and wrongs of your story, the the day-in, day-out hounding of people in public life. Well, there's that old phrase about politicians complaining about the press. It's like sailors complaining about the weather out at sea. Uh, You know, I do do 
I completely deprecate the appalling treatment of women in the House of Commons on social media and the way that, you know, their lives are turned upside down. And that matters a lot in a democracy because we're going to cut ourselves off from a, a section of the population who simply won't be prepared to do it if we're not careful. But So I make that point. But on the whole, I've always thought that you have to have pretty broad shoulders if you're in public life. You won't find over my political career, I've often complained about the press. I mean, I set out mm. in the ch- that chapter that you mentioned. I think it's the shortest chapter in the book, actually, but I set it out what it was like, and the, the reader can uh, make up their own mind. But, you know, there's not a lot of love for politicians in this country. And there is an argument that if we give politicians great power, and they should be held to account and not put up on a pedestal. There are parts of the book, only parts, where I think, why is this man? a conservative. <laughs> the work that you do, that you have did at DFID, I mean, you went in to DFID in 2010 as the Secretary of State, having planned for that role. So you had a plan, you had an idea, and you were the first conservative Secretary of State to really take that role seriously, I would suggest. It was known very much as a, as a Labour portfolio and it was a post that Labour had created. When you're in charge of the child support agency and people are encouraging you to make cuts, you said, well, it's not my job to make poor people poorer. And those kind of sentiments don't always sit well with some of your colleagues in the Conservative Party. I think of the universal credit cut, for example, at the moment. Economically, I suspect you are a conservative and you don't talk that much about that. But many of your instincts around diversity, equality, challenging structural inequality are not those of your colleagues in the Conservative Party or or certainly not of many of your colleagues in the Conservative Party. Well, I'm a one nation conservative. Indeed, I'm the chairman of the one nation group of conservative members of parliament. And have been for many years. Well, I've been the secretary for many years. (laughs) I was only made the secretary because of my access to a decent wine list. In fact, that was was back in the 80s. But but I am the chairman of it now. And I, I mean, the one nation represents a group of conservatives, you know, authentically conservative. Lots of people try and steal the one nation tag, including Tony Blair. But it is a conservative grouping. I would make two points. The first is that what you say about the work and pension social security brief, the sentiments that I expressed there would also, I think, have been expressed by Peter Lilly, who was certainly known as a right winger in the Conservative Party. I think that he would agree with those sentiments about not trying to make poor people poorer. And indeed, he was my Secretary of State. We didn't introduce measures to force single mothers back into work. Those measures actually were introduced by the Blair government. So I don't think that that is necessarily a non-conservative point. And and in DFID, you know, we were respectful of what Labour had done. And if we had a critic of it, it was that they tended to throw money at problems. And we set about assembling a centre-right policy on development, if you like, to, to build another floor on the British leadership on development around the world on the building of that. And our analysis was that actually, if you want to help poor people out of poverty, you have to stop conflict. You have to stop it starting and when it's over, reconcile people because conflict is developed in reverse. And also you have to build prosperity. 
and that having being economically active, having a job, whether in Britain or in Venezuela or in Kenya, having a job, being economically active is how people lift themselves out of poverty. So we championed a prosperity agenda and an anti-conflict agenda. And that was our contribution as conservatives to try and build what was not never really a Labour or, to- or Tory development policy, it was a British policy. And it's, it's my huge, huge regret that we have never managed to persuade more than about 50% of our fellow citizens about the importance of this support. Interestingly, in 2010, 2012, when we had the policies of austerity, uh, support for international development in spite of that, I think mainly because we had a a prime minister who strongly supported support for the government's international development policies went up from 46% to 50%. It has dropped back recently and is now below 45%. But that is also partly because, you know, Boris doesn't champion development in the way that his predecessors have done. And indeed, all his conservative predecessors as prime minister have condemned the decisions that he has made. You describe yourself as an ex-member of the establishment. You describe very well and very funnily going to a public school, a public school previously described by Alex Renton as a place where you, the head teacher was a paedophile, for example. And although you don't brush over that, you enjoyed much of your school days, it seems to me, or at least you're able to, to cope with it. And you were into a merchant bank at Lazard's, for example, effectively because you'd been to Cambridge, you'd failed your maths O-level, but you seem like the right sort of chap. And they I were passed looking to... the second time. <laughs> you passed it second time. Okay, well done. But you know what I'm saying. But you weren't somebody who had a completely gilded pathway, but you were, as you acknowledge, a member of the establishment. And you describe the day when you wake up three years after this horrible plebgate episode in your life, when you realise you you can put that behind you, but you are also no longer a member of the establishment. And, and as if to burnish those credentials, you've been very active in seeking to gain legislation, which would increase transparency, financial transparency globally. You've made a, a cross-party cause of that with Margaret Hodge, the Labour MP. So again, there are instincts of yours, it seems to me, that sit uneasily with many of your colleagues in the Conservative Party? Well, on the establishment point, the subtitle of the book is Tales from a Reformed Establishment Lackey. (laughs) And I can't say that I'm not an establishment figure, because obviously I am. I'm not trying to pretend that I'm not. But I am reformed from when I started, when I thought the establishment was a jolly good thing and I was very proud and pleased to be part of it. I no longer think that now. Many things have been responsible for that. I would say my experience in international development has made me much, much less a supporter of the establishment. Obviously, you know, my experience of the police and of the justice system did not sit easily with that. Uh, And also, you know, the thing that I remember waking up one morning and thinking was utterly preposterous was Tony Blair's plan. I'm an admirer of Tony Blair, and I think he did a lot of good things, actually, in hindsight. I thought so at the time. But the idea that you would lock someone up for 90 days in Britain without charging them, I thought was utterly preposterous, extraordinary thing to do. And, you know, if you were leaning towards a cause that was anti-British and you were then arrested without charge, locked up for 90 days and then released at the end of that period, if you weren't very, very 
anti-Britain when you went into custody. My goodness, you would be at the end of it. So it seemed to me to be a preposterous and self-defeating proposition. And of course, thanks mainly to my friend and colleague, David Davis, it was eventually defeated in the House of Commons. And there's many other things I try to draw out in the book, both about how the establishment has changed, but also how my view of it has changed across quite a wide version of things. And you draw a distinction there between the government of the day and the establishment. What do you mean by the establishment beyond the government of the moment? Well, as I said, I think I've been part of most of the, apart from the monarchy, but most of the bits of it. And I'm trying to explain how it has changed. But also, you remember there's those wonderful David Hare plays about, I think it's Johnny Warwicker, absolutely fabulous uh, three plays uh, on television. And at one point, he leans forward and he says, you know, the establishment always wins. And there is a bit of that, I think. The genius of the British establishment is that it's been able to incorporate enough people to keep itself going down the years. It makes enough concessions to society as it finds it to continue and to work its way. But I am, at the very least, I think, a country member, and I'm a deeply sceptical member, although I can't insult your intelligence agent by saying I'm not (laughs) part of it. No, but I'm just intrigued who it is. For people who don't know that reference, by the way, there was a trio of films by David Hare. The first one was called Page Eight. Uh, The second film was called Turks and Caicos. And the third one was called Salting the Battlefield. So a a trio of of films by David Hare that are well worth you you tracking down, made for the BBC a a number of years ago. Who or what is the establishment and how does it manage to hold on to power so doggedly year in, year out, despite these changes that you've described? It is because of the changes I've described and because of its genius in incorporating within it a critical mass that it survives, in my view. That is how it survives. But as you read the book, you see the quite extraordinary changes. And you mentioned Alex Renton's book. I write with care about that because although that experience of Boris and my prep school which I write about uh, in a humorous way, didn't damage me, although I also make the point that my wife, who's a doctor, would would dissent from the view it didn't damage me at all. Um, It has genuinely caused lifelong misery to Alex and others, as he sets out in the book. And I think, you know, the extraordinary change in those days, there's a strata of British society which sent their children, mainly boys, away at the age of seven or eight to boarding school. And I think that that is an experience which, when you arrive at school at the age of seven or eight, you've come from your family, you are open, loved, soft and gentle. And you very quickly learn in that that, that environment to set up a sort of defensive shield around yourself and to fit in and so on. And I think that that has had a marked effect on generations of mainly English boys and their emotional uh, maturity and as they have got older. Yeah, well, you describe, I think, your teddy bear had its head ripped off before the end of the, uh, the first term as a seven-year-old. Uh, I'll ask you... And what there's a picture of me and the teddy bear, too. <laughs> yeah. Who are the establishment, though? This, this is the kind of the slightly puzzling thing. Who are the establishment? Well, I think the, the establishment uh, is everywhere. It's in the legal system. It's in the judicial system. It's in the parliamentary system. It's in, it's everywhere around us. It is the group of people who 
run the United Kingdom. I think if you read my book, as you so generously have done, you get a feeling for what it is. It's quite hard to describe. I mean, when I was little, I, I remember noticing with some sort of amusement that my father always wore a bowler hat when he left the house. This extraordinary funny thing that he would wear on his head. And of course, everyone did on the tube into the city of London, which was then a completely different thing from what it is now as a closed shop, mainly for the British upper classes, upper middle classes. It was completely different from what it is today. And they wore the uniform of the establishment with their bowler hats and so forth. So it's like the wind. It's, it's hard to describe, but you know it's there and you know what it is. And it is this residual power, then, a power that resides in certain groups, in certain sectors of society, who can push society in the direction that they want it to go, at least to an extent. I think one of the things it has done is the vision of Britain that we have of ourselves is quite well leavened. If you have friends in Europe and friends overseas, people who respect Britain, and Britain has, as I try to show, in terms of development and being a superpower, which has made a real difference and been a bright light in some very dark and troubled parts of the world. I, I often think that we have a view of ourselves which needs to be leavened a bit by understanding how we're seen by others. And, you know, the sort of establishment view that I grew up with, which was to be born British, was to win first prize in God's lottery. I think it needs a bit of leavening, you know. Andrew Mitchell and his autobiography, Beyond a Fringe, Tales from a Reformed Establishment Lackey, is out now through Biteback Publishing. If you want to comment on that story, do get in touch. You can email goldbergradio at gmail.com or join the conversation on Twitter at bylinetimespod. Coming soon, we've got Byline Radio. More details on that in the next few weeks. This has been the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Thanks for listening.